Okay, tonight we're going to be in Nehemiah chapter 7, and we're going forward verse by verse in the book of Nehemiah. And as we come to chapter 7, we just left off last week in chapter 6, where they completed the wall in less than two months. For over 100 years since the return of the captives from Babylon and the Medo-Persian Empire, the, the dream of the Jews was to have a rebuilt temple, which they did previously. But it doesn't do much good if it's not safe and the city's not fortified and the walls needed to be built Different people had made attempts to do it, had not succeeded. The opposition was more than they were up for. But Nehemiah, with his unique position, coming with the letters from King Artaxerxes from the Medo-Persian Empire, and with passion and fire, he, he got it done in less than two months. He dealt with the enemies outside, and he dealt with the contentions amongst the Jewish people taking advantage of each other. And it's, the dust is settled. They finished the wall in less than two months. But still, the problems and the people that caused problems were still there, still causing problems. And that's where we left off with chapter 6 last week. So we pick it up tonight in chapter 7 as, here we go, Nehemiah is still not done with the work that God's entrusted to him. Then it was when the wall was built and had hung the doors, when the gatekeepers, the singers, and the Levites had been appointed, that I gave charge of Jerusalem to my brother Hanani, and Hananiah, the leader of the citadel, for he was a faithful man and feared God more than many. And I said to them, Do not let the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot, and while they stand guard, let them shut and bar the doors. And appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, one at his watch station and another in front of his, uh, his own house. Now the city was large and spacious, but the people in it were few, and the houses were not rebuilt. Then my God put it in my heart to gather the nobles, the rulers, the people, that they might be registered by genealogy. And I, I found a registry of the, a register of the genealogy of those who'd come up in the first return and found written in it. And these are the people of the province who came back from the captivity of those who'd been carried away, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away, and who returned to Jerusalem and Judah, everyone to his city." We'll stop there for a moment. In these first six verses, we see the conclusion, really, of chapter 6. So the wall's been built, but there's still people causing mischief. There's still threats. There's people still don't want to see Israel established as a nation right there, and they're coming against them. And Nehemiah is not immune to that or unaware of that. And so Hanani, if you recall, he's in the book in the very beginning, the very beginning of this book, Nehemiah is there in modern Iran, serving as a, the cupbearer for Artaxerxes, the great king. And he asked Hananiah how things were in Jerusalem. He had come back from Jerusalem to that area to visit, or whatever his purposes were. And it was that report from Hananiah that put Nehemiah in the place of prayer and fasting and seeking the Lord and a vision and a plan. And five or so months later, he's on his way to Jerusalem with a small group of people to do what he's accomplished. So it stands to make sense that Hananiah is the one who shared the vision, then Nehemiah expanded the vision, got it done, and now he's going to turn that leadership over to him. And not just because he's the guy that he knows, but this, this phrase that he was a faithful man and feared God more than many. <laughs> what a great phrase for you as a woman or you as a man, that you're a faithful woman and you fear the Lord and you're a faithful man and you fear God. Now, we've seen a lot of this when we were 
with Chronicles with Hezekiah and Josiah, and we've seen this even with Zerubbabel and others. So we won't make that a point of application, but we will acknowledge like, yeah, those are good qualifications. But we will draw our attention to verse 5, where it says, Then God put into my heart to gather the nobles, the rulers, the people, that they might be registered by genealogy. Then God put in my heart. It's a, it's, a, it's a good phrase. You know, there in Psalm 37, 4, we're told to delight ourselves in the Lord and he'll give us the desires of our heart. And I quote that passage fairly often. Many people would look at that passage and say like, okay, this is my plan. So I'm going to praise the Lord and he's going to bless it. But that's kind of like the, the cart before the horse because really it's delighting ourselves in the Lord for who he is the way he is. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then as we do that, and we just rejoice in the Lord without agenda or some, I mean, we all at times have agendas or ideas or things that we would like to see the Lord do. And that's why we're to test all things and hold fast that which is good. That's why we're told in Proverbs to trust the Lord with all of our heart, lean not on our own understanding, but acknowledge him in all of our ways and he will direct our paths. Because again, in Proverbs, it says that a man or a woman plans their ways, but the Lord directs their steps. So really to be a spirit-filled woman or a spirit-filled man, to have that relationship with Christ, as we abide in Christ, John 15, we abide in him and his word abides in us, we ask what we will, that that, that woman, that man, that's, that's the general disposition of who we are, that we're seeking the Lord and we're acknowledging the Lord, we're abiding in the Lord, and we're living life with the people we live with, the neighborhood, where we work, the community we live in, and we're living this journey, and we're sharing it with other people, and you know, here, Worship Generations Home Church, we're sharing it as a church family, this journey, and whatnot, and the greater body of Christ, and God has a plan, and there's a workmanship, as we know, for our lives, and we don't always have the answers, and that's why we're... In fact, most of the time, we don't. We're told that we walk by faith, and faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence not yet seen. So the life of faith is one adventure after another where God's proven himself faithful, and there's a new thing to move on to or to get after or to resolve. In the world, you move up in the work world because your ability to solve problems, and your pay scale goes up. That's why people say, well, that problem's above my pay grade because they can solve those problems at that level, and we solve problems or I solve problems at this level. But that's the world and financial compensation. But the beauty for us in Christ being a disciple is we can solve any problem because we can get the mind of the Lord as we seek the Lord. As we delight ourselves in the Lord, he'll put things on our heart, what he's calling us to do and how to go forward with it. Or if there's obstacles and op oppositions, he makes them opportunities. And God said through Zerubbabel a couple of generations before this, who are you, O mountain, to stand before the, my servant Zerubbabel? I will level you like a plain. For it's not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And as Nehemiah looked at this situation, he realized, like, you know, we've got a situation going on here because, well, we'll see in the next chapter, we'll see in a couple chapters down the road that there were not enough people living in Jerusalem. There were not enough inhabitants in a city. And they didn't, there weren't enough people to protect the city within the walls of the city. And Jerusalem is a central place of identity for Israel and for worship as it was then even to this day, really. 
Oh, Jerusalem, if I forget you, right? Like that's always been the, the cry of the Jews, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city of the prophets. So they built this wall and it's like a, a city that needs people. And so he's looking at this going like, we, we don't have enough military, if you will, to hold this place. And it's not yet really functioning the way we want it to function. It's like a planned community, but people haven't bought the houses yet. They're still looking at the models, like, which model do you want, A, B, or C, like Temecula 25 years ago, right? All those planned communities, like, oh, I like this model, the three-bedroom, two-bath with the two-story, you know, like, like and it's not, it's not there yet. See, because the houses aren't rebuilt yet. So it's a wall protecting a ruined city. But this is their future, this is their hope, and they need people in the city to build up the city to reboot their capital. And that's that's the obstacle. That's the situation. And the solution is to go back to the old registry from 100 years before with everyone that came back from Zerubbabel, find the descendants, and start tracking them down and trying to get people to step up two generations later, the grandchildren or great-grandchildren. Come, 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 you know. Shalom, shalom. Come live in Jerusalem and let's rebuild the holy city, the city of the king, right? Because that's what Jesus called it in the Sermon on the Mount the other night. Ah, don't swear by Jerusalem, the city of the king, right? So Nehemiah's got that vision. But what I love about this is that this phrase, then my God put it to my heart. I say this about dreams. You can have, we all have dreams, and you can have dreams because something you saw that day. You can have a dream that's edifying because you filled your mind with edifying things. You can have a dream from the Lord, literally. It happens for sure. You can have a dream from the devil that's trying to cause fear in you or strike fear or anxiety or the inability to take those thoughts captive could create dreams that way. You just have really strange dreams because you ate bad food at a bad restaurant or something, right? Like, so you can have these different thoughts. We all get these different thoughts that come in out of our mind when we're sleeping and we get thoughts that come in out of our mind. We're like a laptop, right? These things just keep coming. It's, it's that spam. That's trash. This is the, that, keep that, save that, file that. That's, you know, this is your hard drive. That's why your noggin needs to be protected, right? Take every thought captive, obedient to Christ. That's your screen filtering and protecting your life, protecting your heart. But as we abide in the Lord and we walk with the Lord, what happens is he does put things on our heart. And he will move on our heart. So this is just a reminder. Now, this isn't like I talk about where God gives someone a vision to go out and do something. Sarah Hill's my favorite example of this because I'll never forget when she came to me at the Bible college. And she said, she was at the Bible college. I was teaching a church planning class with like 15 people. And she was there taking other classes, but she knew me. And she said, hey, I feel like I'm called to go to the Hawaiian Islands do ministry in Hawaii. And I wow, okay. And she goes, but every time I tell someone they're like that, they're like, Hawaii, really? I wish I was called to go to Hawaii and do ministry too. Well, she, the Lord had spoken to her just reading her Bible through Isaiah about reaching the people in the isles, in the islands. And that was what God spoke to her. And now here we go, 25 years later, Sarah Hill's been doing ministry with young people for 25 years, never got married, 25 years, like an Amy Carmichael in India, 25 years serving teenagers in a world with promiscuity, drugs, and alcohol abuse, and broken families there on Kauai for 25 years. She brings ministry teams. They do ministry in Rosarito. They go to Tijuana and the, the orphanage and the trash dump there in Tijuana. And, but like she came to me and she said, 
I was reading this passage, and I, I think God's telling me to go to Hawaii. And, and I said, well, you, you got to go. And she did go, and they went with a little team, and they all said, it's not for us. She came back. She said, it is for me. And she said, what should I do next? And I said, buy a car there or move your car there. Invest in that vision and that calling. And that's exactly what she did. She shipped her car from San Diego to Kauai because now you're invested. Now you're a little more in. As they say, more skin in the game. But it all began when she's just reading her Bible and God put it in my heart to go to Kauai. God put it in my heart to go to Kauai. Now, in this context, this is a situation and solution. So this is why it's so important, all those passages I shared, to delight yourself in the Lord, to abide in Christ, to trust in the Lord, plan your steps, but know that the Lord has the final say. This is God giving Nehemiah the solution to his problem. He was aware of this problem, and my God put in my heart to gather the nobles. He gave him the solution. What's the plan? Look, the plan is gather everybody, small and great, find that former census, and get the people together and get people to volunteer to come live in this city. That's the plan. So just a reminder to us, that's the beauty of being a spirit-filled woman or a spirit-filled man. When you're walking with the Lord and abiding in his word, God can, he can put in my heart, your heart, right directly from the scriptures. For what's next in your life or how to resolve a situation or circumstance in your life. Or when you're just praying and still in your mind, as David said, be still and know that I'm the Lord. He can, he can put into your heart what the next thing is. This is the plan from God. Nehemiah didn't say, and I came up with a great plan and I wrote a, a, some tips to life about it. Or I did a YouTube video on a great plan, how to solve this problem. It says, he says... Then my God put into my heart. It came from the Lord. And isn't that the best plan, by the way? And isn't that always the best solution? Whether it's a family dynamic, a job situation, a personal financial situation, a conflict resolution, a legal situation. And God put into my heart to gather the nobles. God gave him the solution to the situation. I wouldn't say it was a problem. It was more like a situation. He had a good plan open the gates later when it's warmer. He was super guarded on like protecting the city even though there's nothing in there. But they weren't going to give up the ground they gained by what the labor they did. So it's just a good reminder to us that's why it's so important to trust in the Lord with all of our heart. Lay not on our understanding. Acknowledge him in all of our ways and let him direct our paths. And sometimes, yeah, of course, it's common sense. Sometimes it's like a little bit like, oh, I didn't even think of that. But in the end, there's no Rubik's Cube that the Holy Spirit can't resolve when it's his will in your life to resolve it. And it's much better to have the Lord put something in our heart than us to think of some great thing as the sons of Adam and daughters of Eve. It's much better to be spirit-led and guided by the Lord for understanding circumstances, situations, and solutions. Now we get a list of these names, and these are names that we know. We know these people. We, we made friends with them back in Ezra chapter 2. And we get them again here. So they get mentioned in the Bible twice. The read is a little easier the way it's laid out in my Bible in the book of Nehemiah. And these are the people, about you know, 45,000 of them came back 100 years before. And their descendants are the ones that Nehemiah is recruiting to come live in the city. And we'll see some interesting things as we go through this. Those who came, verse 7 with Zerubbabel, were Jeshua, Nehemiah, Azariah, Remiah, 
Nahamani, Mordecai, Bilshad, Mizpareth, Bigvai, Nahun, Bana. There was that cluster of 12 that were there with Nehemiah, in, or excuse me, with Zerubbabel on the return. The number of the men of the people of Israel, so the general people of Israel, the sons of Parash, 2,172, the sons of Sheftiah, 372, the sons of Ara, 652, the sons of Pahath, Moab, of the sons of Jeshua and Joab, 2,818, the sons of Elam, 1,254, the sons of Zatu, 845, the sons of Zakai, 760, the sons of Benui, 648, the sons of Bibe, 628, the sons of Asgad, 2,322, the sons of Donakim, 667, the sons of Bigbai, 2,067, the sons of Adin, 655, the sons of Atur of Hezekiah, 98, the sons of Hashim, 328, the sons of Bezai, 324, the sons of Heraph, 112, the sons of Gibeon, 95, the sons of Bethlehem and Netophon, 188, the men of Anath, 128, the men of Beth Asmabeth, 42, the men of Kirjath Jerem, Shepharah, and Baroth, 743, the men of Rama and Geba, 621, the men of Michmash, 122, the men of Bethel and Ai, 123, the men of other Nebo, 52, the sons of other Elam, 1,254, the sons of Haram, 320, the sons of Jericho, 345, the sons of Lod, Hadid, and Ono, 721, the sons of Saniah, 3,930. So these people, their regions, their villages, their communities, they had come back, they redwelt the land as we studied back in the book of Ezra on the first wave of people that came back with Zerubbabel. In verse 39, now we get the subdivisions of service people. The priests, the sons of Jedidiah of the house of Jeshua, 973. The sons of Immer, 1,052. Sons of Pasher, 1,247. The sons of Haram, 1,017. The Levites, that's that distinction. Priests can serve in all these capacities, but the other subdivisions serve in the ministry, but not equal to the priests. They're the Levites. The sons of Jeshua of Kadmiel, of the sons of Hadabah, 74. The singers, the sons of Asaph, 148. The gatekeepers, the sons of Shalom, the sons of Atur, the sons of Talmon, the sons of Akab, the sons of Hatata the sons of Shobai, 138. Then the Nithinim, the sons of Ziha, the sons of Hazufa, the sons of Tebioth, the sons of Kuros, the sons of Saya, the sons of Padan, the sons of Lebanon, the sons of Hagabah, the sons of Salmai, the sons of Hanan, the sons of Gedel, the sons of Gahar, the sons of Ria, the sons of Rezin, the sons of Nekoada, the sons of Gazim, the sons of Uzzah the sons of Pesah, the sons of Besai, the sons of Minim, the sons of Nephishim, the sons of Bakbuk, the sons of Hakifa, the sons of Haror, the sons of Basileth, the sons of Mehida, the sons of Harsha, the sons of Barkos, the sons of Sisera, the sons of Tama, the sons of Niziah, the sons of Hatifa. Verse 57. 
the sons of Solomon's servants, the sons of Sotai, the sons of Sophoreth, the sons of Perida, the sons of Jalah, the sons of Darkon, the sons of Gidel, the sons of Shephatiah, the sons of Hatil, the sons of Pachareth of Zebaim, and the sons of Ammon. All, all the Nithinim and the sons of Solomon's servants were 392. And these were the ones who came up from Tel Melath, Tel Harsha, Cherub, Adon, and Immer, but they could not identify their father's house nor their lineage, that is their genealogy, whether they're of Israel. So they're the mixed multitude. The sons of Deliah, the sons of Tobiah, the sons of Nakoda, 642. And of the priests, the sons of Habiah, the sons of Kaz, the sons of Barzaeli, who took a wife of the daughters of Barzaeli the Gileite, who was called by their name. These sought their listings among those who were registered by genealogy, but it was not found. Therefore, they were excluded from the priesthood as defiled. And the governor said to them that they should not eat of the most holy things till the priest could consult the Urim and the Thummim. And the Urim and the Thummim is kind of like lots or the dice to give the Lord's reading on something where they didn't know. Verse 66. Although the whole assembly was 42,360 besides their male and female servants, of whom there were 7,337, and they had 245 men and women singers, their horses were 736, their mules were 245, their camels 435, and the donkeys 6,720. And some of the heads of the father's houses gave to the work. The governor gave to the treasury 1,000 gold drachmas, 50 basins, and 530 priestly garments. Some of the heads of the father's houses gave up to the treasury of the work 20,000 gold drachmas and 2,200 silver minas. And that which was the rest of the people gave was 20,000 gold drachmas, 2,000 silver minas, 67 priestly garments. So the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, and some of the people, the Nethim, and all Israel dwelt in their cities. So the descendants of these people were scattered, and they weren't there in Jerusalem. They may have been a part of building the wall. Most surely they were, many of them, the descendants. But that wasn't really their home. It's like they did their work, but they went back home to their village where they lived, and this is a problem or, again, a situation that needs resolution. This list reminds us again, I mentioned this in Ezra, these are quality people. It is said that less than 2% of the Jews in captivity returned to the promised land with Zerubbabel on this list. So this 45,000 is less than 2% of the overall Jewish population that was taken away into captivity that thrived in Babylon and then thrived in Medo-Persia. In fact, they were very, very successful. There's tens of thousands of tablets that are records of life in Babylon and the Medo-Persian Empire in museums all over the world. And they describe commerce, trade, debt, mortgages, taxes, liens on houses. You see, there's nothing new under the sun. And the Jewish people in captivity, if you remember, Jeremiah said, you know, you're going to be 70 years in the land, be fruitful, thrive in the land, have families, raise families, get married, have children, prosper in the land. And they did. The Jewish people were extremely successful in the Babylonian, Medo-Persian world, And there are thousands and thousands of clay tablets that confirm that. In fact, they found favor because if you're the king of Babylon or the king of Medo-Persia and you have citizens that make money, 
that you can tax, and they provide jobs for people because they make money that you can tax, it's good for the economy. So really this list of people that seem like all these names that I got most of them right on, that this list of people, they're not just people that came back, they're people that left everything they knew and the security of what was known to be a part of something new for the sake of their people and their future and the nation of Israel. They're less than 2% estimated by the accounts of the total Jewish people spread throughout the Medo-Persian Empire at that time. They were pioneers. They went for it. So now, their children's children, they're descendants of pioneers. They're descendants of risk takers. You talk about America, almost anyone you can talk to that's a baby boomer like myself, you talk to someone, you, they pretty much can trace their coming to America three generations back. When you study famous American people, more often than not, you'll read like, hey, they're, they were descendants, their, their mom was Belgium, their dad was Irish, whatever, and they came in 1890, whatever, whether it's the Ford, Ford Motor Company, Henry Ford, or you know, um, Dale Carnegie and his steel company and railway. These people are all like immigrants, Chinese immigrants, all the Chinese immigrants and the Japanese immigrants. They, they, they came, they, they, they came and they stayed and they prospered, Korean immigrants. Now Middle Eastern immigrants and people from other parts of the world. It's still the land of opportunity. I said this before. My great-grandmother got on a boat in the poor people portion of a boat from Norway and came across the Atlantic Ocean, the pond, with seven kids having not seen her husband for three years, not speaking a word of English. Came right through Ellis Island, processed at Ellis Island. Got on a train and went to Illinois to meet up with Hoken Baran, my great-grandfather, her husband. Isn't that crazy? But you guys got stories just as good or better. I mean, when I hear stories of your parents or your great-parents, your grandparents or your great-grandparents and their immigration and what they went through and how they established themselves, I mean, that's kind of the beauty of the American experience. We lack that, we lack a, a cotton, uh, a continuity like ethnicity gives you, like Koreans or Chinese or Japanese or something like that. We do lack that. But we are unified by a, a spirit of adventure and, and going for it, the pioneering spirit. That's pretty much the American way. Still is. I mean, we were the first ones on the moon. And we'll probably be the first ones on Mars, too. You know, if that goes that long until the Lord comes back. But America has led the way, and we still lead the way. So I think from being American, you can appreciate the t these people on this list, what they did, the sacrifices they made. And now Nehemiah is asking their descendants to make another great sacrifice. The life you've built in your village, Kirjath Jerem, that vineyard, those olive groves that provide for you, your security, I'm asking you to give up one of your family members to come be a merchant and live in the city. It's the Industrial Revolution, Judah style, post-exile. I'm asking you to give up your life and what you know and come live in Jerusalem so we can be stronger as a nation. And that's our context. Isn't that beautiful? It's pretty cool if you think about it. They're amazing people. This list, yeah, I didn't really touch on these people the first time we went through it in Ezra, but the more I think about it, we have to tip our hats to them and just give them a, a little shock, a Jesus shock, like, yeah, good for you. Because you've ever loaded up your car with your wife and your nine-month-old daughter and driven 3,000 miles on a new adventure with Jesus, you know what I'm talking about. 
because that's what I did with Jennifer. That's what we did in 1990 to go start a church in Virginia Beach. If you've ever driven through the night to start a whole new life somewhere, like when we drove up the 95 in the middle of the night going by Philadelphia at 1 in the morning, headed for Vermont to start a whole new life. That's what the O'Connors did with us. Uh, there's, when you go for it, it's exciting, but way more exciting when you go for it with Jesus. It's one thing to be a world traveler and a backpacker, you know, and stay at hostels in Bali when you're just young and doing that kind of stuff in the 80s. It's quite another when you do that stuff with Jesus. And it's quite another. This reminds us that there's sacrifices that need to be made that God might call us to make to advance the kingdom of God, to give up our comfort zones and our luxuries to, to get out of our rut, if it's a rut, or just get out of our, what we know and take a new step of faith. That's what Nehemiah is doing. He's going to recruit from these people to do that. So they're descendants. They're descendants to do that. And that's our background. So praise the Lord for people who go for it. Praise the Lord for people who travel 900 miles to start all over again without any guarantee other than the Torah, the priest, the faith in God, and a temple to be built and a wall that will be built 100 years after your arrival. Praise the Lord for people who seize the moment here and now to be the 2% and take great steps of faith because that's who these people on that list we just read. Even the, even the ones that couldn't prove their genealogy or prove their priest, okay, you can't do the priesthood, but you know what? There's a lot of land here. Go find your homestead. Make it happen in Jesus' name, city of the king. Now we pick it up in chapter 8. Now all the people gathered together as one man in the open square that was in front of the water gate. And they told Ezra, the scribe, to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men and women and all who could hear with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. And then he read from it in the open square that was in front of the water gate from morning until midday before the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of the people were attentive to the book of the law. So Ezra the scribe stood on a platform of wood, which they had made for that purpose. And beside him at the right hand stood Mattathiah, Shema, Ananiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Masiah, and at his left hand, Pediah, Mishael, Malkajah, Hashem, Hashbadana, Zechariah, and Mashalem. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. Then all the people answered, Amen and Amen. It's like WG when we say yes and Amen. Amen, Amen while lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Jeshua, Bani, Shabiah, Jamin, Akab, Shabbatiah, Hadijah, Masiah, Kelita, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Peliah, and the Levites helped the people to understand the law, the law of God, and the people stood in their place. So they read distinctly from the book in the law of God. And they gave sense and helped them understand the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, Ezra the priest and the scribe, and the Levites taught the people and said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn nor weep, for all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. And then he said to them, go your way, eat the fat, drink the sweet, send portions to those who nothing is prepared, for this day is holy to our Lord. 
Do not sorrow, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites quieted all the people, saying, Be still, for the day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink, to send portions, and rejoiced greatly, because they understood the words that were declared to them. Now, this is gets my attention that we've seen the great revivals that happened with Hezekiah, right? When he sent out the messengers and they all kept the special Passover when God delivered them from Sennacherib and the Assyrians. Then we saw Josiah do the same thing where he did this great revival and all the people came and it says there was a Passover like it had never been a Passover ever in the history of Israel. We've seen at times as we've gone through the historical books because we're almost done with them. The poetic books are coming up. And as we wrap up these historical books, we get another situation of a revival. And I love this phrase. Look at verse 1. Now all the people were gathered together as one man. Wow. That's not just the people of covenant. That's a national identity. I mean, it's hard enough to get a household of seven to agree on anything unanimously. Right? I mean, the beauty of marriage is that two people learn to work together from here to eternity. That's the beauty of a, a marriage that makes the, the, like, wow, you know, like, it's really hard for people to agree on anything. So when you're talking about a national group of the, the people of God, a covenant people group, and then it, they're an ethnic people group with their mixed multitude in there, but primarily Jewish, ethnically, descendants of Abraham. And it says, after all they've been through, after surviving the siege of Santa Carib, after the besieging of Nebuchadnezzar and the three captivities and the waves and the slavery and the bondage, after almost a century in captivity, after the return under Zerubbabel, and then the little trickle effect after Ezra came back years later, and of course Ezra's still here, and now Ezra and Nehemiah are the same timeline, sharing the planet and the place and the podium together, though they're about a generation apart. To see God's people after all they've been through, after all the attempts to just eradicate them from planet Earth, here they are gathered together as one man with the law of the Lord, the Torah, the word of God. It is beautiful. This is a beautiful chapter. Plus, the thing about the law is the Bible tells us through the law comes the knowledge of sin. That the Ten Commandments says you're not going to be saved this way because you're not good enough. And there are, there are a tutor or a coach that points us to Jesus and says, he's the one that fulfills it. And put your faith in him and believe in him. And it's then reckoned to your account that he fulfilled it for you. So it's like you get his credit for what he did. That's what, of course, the New Testament teaches when Jesus said, I came to fulfill the law, particularly the Ten Commandments. So as these people are thinking about their personal lives before the Lord, as they're thinking about their families and where they're at, how they just kind of live their life with these mixed people groups around them who are opposed to them, resist them in a lot of things, but they've all, you know, they're coexisting, if you will. And then suddenly under the leadership of Nehemiah, the wall is built, and they realize, no, there's so much more to be had for the people of God. There's so much more for us to get after. There's so much more work to be done. It's not a time of uh, apathy, but it's a time of exhortation. And they realize that. But as the law is read, they're standing there and, the, and just reading like Deuteronomy. 
just reading the law. And furthermore, this, 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 this. And it's all good. We're told the law is holy. It's good. You can't, you can't bring an accusation against God from the law. The God is light and him is no darkness at all. The law is good. Like, aren't you glad that God is never a crooked judge in a court case? Aren't you glad there's no shadow of turning with the father of light? <laughs> like, everything in God's law is perfect and sound and true and serves a purpose. Whether it serves a purpose that's past tense, the religious law, the animal sacrifices, or the uh, dietary law, and it serves a purpose, an example of things, or the moral law of the law still fulfilled that will love our neighbor as ourselves, which we see in Romans. Nine of the Ten Commandments reaffirmed. We fulfill the law by the power of the Holy Spirit. We're saved by grace, and the fruit of that grace and spirit working as we live that law and shine that law, not because we have to or that's how we're earning our favor, but we've already got the favor, and it's just the result of abiding in Christ. Because of Christ being us, hope of glory, what did Christ do? He fulfilled the moral law. So Christ is an adulterer. He's not a liar. He's not a thief. and He's not covetous. So the more Christ in you, what are you going to have? More of that. More of the love. More of above reproach. Isn't that beautiful? But the law does bring conviction. Ray Comfort, the famous evangelist, used to you know, go down to Angel Beach every weekend. And he says, you know, people are like, oh, I'm going to heaven. He's like, really? You know? And so he would, he would use the Ten Commandments. And if you've ever seen the Ray Comfort videos, like he just, I mean, boy, he could... He looks like Benny Hanna with the law with people, you know, like just chopping things up on the girl, like, oh, you're a good person, really? Have you ever done this? Yes. You know, have you ever done that? Then you're an adulterer, you're this and that, and you're, you're, you're going to hell. And, and people are like, what? You know, like, and, but they would agree with him. He would get them to agree with him. He would show them they're condemned, and he would get them to agree with him that they're condemned. So the law will do that. The, the law, People trying to justify themselves will condemn them. So for the, the law has that power to bring tears and sorrow, and that's what happened here. The people read the law, and they heard the law like, oh, man. But as Ezra read it, as the priests and Levites gave understanding, the people were like, oh, we're just, we've broken all this. We, we're, we're not this. I haven't done this. You know, like, oh, you know, like tearing the garments, if you will. And like, no, 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 it's a holy day. See, because we're a people of covenant. This isn't, we're not reading the law to, to get all upset and get down on ourselves. We're reading the law to understand what's right and true and just and noble and praiseworthy so we can align our lives to that. We're not reading the law to beat ourselves up for yesterday's failures. We are reading the word of God and the law to show us what's right and wrong for tomorrow's successes as we live by faith and go forward. This is not a time to be weeping and mourning, although that's the first response. This is a time to be rejoicing. Did you catch that? Twice it says, rejoice, be joyful. Because this is our standard. Our, the world's not our standard. The philosophies of our professors are not our standards. The world religions are not our standards. God's word is our standard. We're the people of covenant. That's what like Nehemiah and the guys in Ezra are saying. Rejoice. We're the people of covenant. This is for us. Rejoice. Start, start dancing a Hebrew dance with a Hebrew song. Stop crying. This isn't to condemn us and throw us off a cliff. We're the people of covenant. This is to remind us who's for us, his standard, that God is light and he's good, and there's a reason to wake up tomorrow and get after what's good. And so let's rejoice. They gave them understanding. Over and over the phrase, understanding, 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 understanding. They gave them understanding to the scriptures so they would find promises in the scriptures. They would find comfort in the scriptures. They would find hope in the scriptures. And as it even says in the text, they would find joy 
and rejoicing in the scriptures, yes, the reading of the law for the people of covenant who were under the law at that time. It's a beautiful scene. It's full revival. Verse 13. Now on the second day, the heads of the fathers' houses of all the people with the priests and Levites were gathered to Ezra the scribe in order to understand the words of the law. They're like, hey, let's get more. Let's understand all this. And they found written in the law, which the Lord had commanded by Moses, that the children of Israel should dwell in booths or, or tents during the feast of the seventh month. This is the Feast of Tabernacles. And they should announce and proclaim in all the cities and all Jerusalem, saying, go out to the mountains and bring back olive branches, branches of oil trees and myrtle branches, palm branches, branches of leafy trees to make booths as it is written. Then the people went out and brought them and made themselves booths or tents, each one on the roof of his house or in the courtyards of the court or the house of God. And in the open square of the water gate and in the open square of the gate of Ephraim, so the whole assembly of those who returned from the captivity, they made these booths and sat under the booths. For since the days of Joshua, the son of Nun, until the day the children of Israel had done, not done so. And there was great gladness. Also day by day from the first day until the last day, he read from the book of the law of God. And they kept the feast seven days. And on the eighth day, there was a sacred assembly according to the prescribed manner. I just love happy chapters in the Old Testament, don't you? In the historical books particularly. What a happy chapter. Man, God is so good. They're hearing the word of God taught, and they're like, and then God's like just blessing them with Ezra and Nehemiah and the priests and the Levites, and it's all good news and giving them understanding. And then they realize, hey, we've never, okay, so think it, Hezekiah, and Josiah, their revival was Passover. The three big ones are Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacle. There's his tabernacle. We didn't see this. And what a phrase, not since Joshua brought them into the land a thousand years before. A thousand years is a long time, right? That's before the Magna Carta, right? Like, that's a long time ago, people. A thousand years is a long time. They're doing something for the people of covenant, as the people of covenant, that has not been done for a thousand years. No previous generation of the people of covenant had ever experienced this type of experience on this level, on a national level, as one man would, as one mind, a spiritual thing, motivated, inspired, encouraged, with rejoicing because of the word of God. Isn't this, this is like, this is Old Testament revival and all of its beauty. We need to be reminded, and this text reminds us tonight, when we go home on a high note tonight, that when we really align our hearts with the word of God, and we really want to get after the things of God, and we want to go places with God that we've never gone before, ultimately, God has a great plan in it, but there's going to be great gladness in it. The more that we move on an upward spiral toward the things of obedience, the things of faith, the things of the kingdom, the things of the glory, it's going to bring peace and joy and Love and goodness to our lives. Happy is the man or woman who trusts in the Lord. So worship generation. To be reminded that we're pilgrims and live in a tent for a week. And to do something that's never been done in a thousand years. What a glorious thing. Great gladness. May we be encouraged and inspired. Yes and amen.